Hello, I'm Adam Schwalbe, and welcome to Critical History. Before we begin with the episode, I would like to talk about the new structure of the podcast. It will be divided into seasons, which will cover our particular place and or time. This first season will be about Europe from 1688 to 1714, and in this episode, we will be contextualizing the rest of the season. So welcome to the first of the episodes, Contextualizing 1688, the year of the anti-French coalition the Glorious Revolution and the kickoff of the Nine Years' War. We will first discuss England and their internal squabbles. The main focus on England before the period 1688 was on the question of absolutism. So should the king be absolute or should they be dominated by parliament? This disagreement manifested as the English Civil War traditionally dated between 1642 and 1651. Although these were the official start and end dates of the major periods of the war, events before and after these dates happened which had a major impact on this conflict and English history in general, so this segment will look at the broader picture. First, a discussion of Parliament and its powers. Created by the Magna Carta, it was structured bicamerally, with a House of Lords and a House of Commons. These houses would be filled out by representatives elected from the landholding men of England, and therefore they represented the more powerful members of English society. The initial powers of Parliament were quite limited. It was only to be an advisory body called by the king whenever he wished. However, over the years it gained one monumental power, the power of the purse. Although the king had the ability to levy taxes from a small number of towns, in general a majority of the government's income came from Parliament. This makes sense because Parliament represented the people who paid the most taxes, and these would be much more compliant, paying taxes that they knew were approved by their representatives working in their interests. The implications of these powers were immense. Parliament was no longer an advisory committee. It held real power over the monarchs, for they could not run a state without money. This also meant that they could pass statutes and laws. However, Parliament was still limited. They were at the mercy of the monarch who could choose to dissolve the assembly whenever they wanted to, and they could not force their will upon a monarch who, in the end, had the final say. Interestingly, parliamentarianism had similarities to the estate system that was common in Austria in which nobles, clergy, and rich urbanites would come together and exercise control over a sovereign. Aside from that, though, this parliamentary system worked generally well through English history, to the point where, although monarchs and parliamentarians sometimes feuded, there was no large-scale bloodshed between the two groups. This was about to change, though, with the ascension of Charles I. Charles did several things to antagonize Parliament. Firstly, he signaled that he would like to continue his father's dead ambition of uniting the British Isles under one new kingdom, Great Britain. This was distasteful to Parliament, because the constituent kingdoms, minus England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, did not have parliamentary traditions, and therefore, it was thought that Parliament might fall by the wayside in this new empire. Secondly, he married a French Catholic princess, odious to the Anglican population. Thirdly, and perhaps most significantly, perhaps wanting to emulate his absolutist peers in France, Charles dissolved Parliament for 11 years. This time would later be known as the Eleven Years' Tyranny, and suffice it to say that during this period, Charles became extremely unpopular, mostly through the ways in which he compensated for the lack of parliamentary money. As an example, he started to institute a ship tax, a duty which had previously been levied on coastal counties to fund pirate fighting ventures on inland counties in England. Charles had antagonized Parliament greatly, and had even broken free of their shackles for eleven years, but he was forced back to the bargaining table when the Scots got riotous. 
1637 as a result of Charles trying to Anglicanize the Scottish National Church. Thousands of Scots rose up in rebellion under the banner of the National Convention. These were generally called Covenanters, and they marched down into England to try and force the king to withdraw his meddling. Charles threw together a ramshackle army to deal with this problem, but because the state was not receiving parliamentary taxes, the army was unpaid and demoralized. It got obliterated by the rebels, and Charles was forced to convene parliament for the first time in 11 years. This new parliament refused to give Charles money without addressing some of their concerns about him, mostly about taxes, and Charles, in a fit of rage, dissolved it. He threw together another army, which suffered as the first did, and it got crushed again. Charles then sued for peace and agreed to most of the Scottish demands, and significantly a large sum of reparation money for Scotland. Tail between his legs, Charles returned and called for another parliament, and at the time agreeing to their demands, getting money in return for the execution of the governor of Ireland, banning of crown tax collection, the enactment of habeas corpus, and the Triennial Act, which in effect made parliament permanent. The Parliament was not finished, however, for then it would pass the Grand Remonstrance, which listed hundreds of grievances against the King. This divided Parliament sharply and enraged the King, who sent in troops to arrest five MPs from the House of Commons, and most significantly Pym, the opposition leader. As they had already fled, the arrest failed, and Charles continued to make a name for himself as a tyrant. Seeing conflict in the future, Parliament and the King both started preparing for war, creating alliances and raising soldiers, until at last, Charles officially started the war by raising his standards over Nottingham. In the interests of concision, I will not delve too deeply into the troop movements and territorial changes for the wars. Suffice it to say that after losing territory, Parliament turned it around and forged an alliance with the Scots by offering religious concessions. Then, the combined Scottish parliamentarian force routed the Royalists, with major victories at Marston Moor and Newbury. Charles was captured, and so ended the First War. Its effects are enormous. Firstly, Oliver Cromwell, the future military dictator, emerged as a leader in the Battle of Marston Moor. Secondly, Parliament had successfully asserted itself over the King. It had fully rebuked Charles' power play during the tyranny, and had denied his dream of English absolutism. Thirdly, the war had seen the creation of the Parliamentarian New Model Army, which at its conception was a new, disciplined, well-paid professional army, which was leagues better than the militias previously used. After Charles was delivered into the hands of Parliament, they, they let him go, hoping to have taught him a lesson about the supremacy of Parliament. His royal ambitions were clearly not over, however, because just a few years later he signed a deal with the Scots, promising them religious freedom in return for supporting him in a continuation war. The Covenanters switched sides and invaded England yet again, this time in support of Charles. The invasion was crushed in one battle at Preston, and Parliament decided that Charles could no longer be trusted anymore. They beheaded him, and the Scots reacted with outrage and coronated his son, Charles II, as King of the Scots. The Irish revolts happening at this point also supported Charles II, but they were crushed by the parliamentarians and they could not provide much help. This left the Scots to reinstate him in England, which they did with two invasions which were each crushed in turn, first at Dunbar, then at Worcester. These battles ended the Scottish rebels, and finally, after about 200,000 dead, all the Isles were united under Parliament's rule. So ended the English Civil Wars. From the moment the king was executed, the question of who should lead the country was in the forefront of everyone's minds. 
The problem was first taken on when the Commonwealth of England was declared, and the executive and legislative powers were divvied up between the Council of State and the Rump Parliament. The Rump Parliament is named as such because it was made of the members of the previous parliament who had survived anti-royalist purges. This was generally an effective government when all members could agree on issues, but after the Civil War ended and there was no longer a common enemy in the royalists, their bodies quickly fractured and became paralyzed by disagreements. This continued until Oliver Cromwell, a high-ranking member of the New Model Army, got fed up with the indecision and dissolved with the Rump Parliament. Afterwards, power was briefly held by a theocratic government, and afterwards, England settled on its choice of government form, a military dictatorship. Our friend Oliver Cromwell was coronated on the 16th of December, 1653, and for five years he would rule the country. In spite of being nearly an autocrat, Cromwell did well for the English domestically. First, he ensured a good quality of clergy and teachers by creating a system of triers and ejectors to both identify new good candidates for said jobs and dismiss the old hats that were loosening their standards. Secondly, although resistance from lawyers dampened his efforts, he reformed the law, reducing punishments for petty crimes. Finally, he encouraged education by funding Oxford University. In terms of foreign policy, Cromwell did similarly well. He finished the Anglo-Dutch War unpopular because it was against fellow Protestants, and again, along religious lines, he conquered Jamaica from Spain. Cromwell died in 1658, his protectorate soon falling and the monarchy returning. Regardless, Cromwell remains perhaps one of the most decisive figures in British history. On one hand, he led a quasi-genocide of Irish people when he was on campaign there, slaughtering town after town, showing no remorse. In addition, he was very bigoted on his religious views. Indeed, the reason he was remorseless in his killing of the Irish was because they were Catholic. On the other hand, he was an extremely no-nonsense pragmatist ruler. He did good for England internally. In addition, he had a sense of limits on his power. He could have easily become King Oliver, an autocrat, but refused because of the philosophical and moral implications. Turning down power, that is truly the mark of a good man. Whatever you believe of Cromwell, whether he was a hero or a villain, the fact remains that he was extremely important for the development of England. As stated previously, just two years after Cromwell's death, Charles II was proclaimed king by Parliament, who ruled that legally he had been king for the past 19 years. Essentially, they ruled that the book would be closed on the civil wars and things returned to the way they were before, albeit with more parliamentary power. And this is where we leave England off, rejoicing under a new monarchy, joyous that the bloodshed of the past 19 years would be no more. How wrong they would be, but we will cover that in a separate episode. Our next segment is about France, and I would like to apologize in advance for the, for the French pronunciations. I know that I will butcher. So as the English, during the period before 1688, France had their own transformative quarrels with absolutism, and needless to say, things ended very differently. This conflict was called the Fronde, and it is here that we shall start our tale of France. France did have conflicts with Spain during this period, but that we shall save for the Spanish section, and in this segment focus solely on France and their absolutism. Firstly, a snapshot of French politics before the Fronde. During this period, French nobles held most of the power, and their personal strength and troops they could raise, as well as judicial bodies called parlements, kept the monarch's authority in check. Now, the inklings of change were in the air in the form of indentants, officers loyal only to the king, who were dispatched to French provinces to ensure the king's will was carried out in a judicial and financial sense. 
but overall the nobility still retained much power. This power was codified in their ancient feudal liberties, not in the modern Bill of Rights sense, but rather powers that the nobility had in contrast to the king, namely freedom from taxation. For a metaphor close to home, think of states' rights in the United States. In addition to the nobility, the parliament also had massive powers in antebellum France. Although created in the same century, these parlements were not the legislative English style of parliaments, but rather courts that ratified or rejected royal decrees and acted as a judicial system for feudal disputes and crimes. They drew their power both from tradition and from who they claimed to represent, all of the nobles of the realm. Although the 1648 parlements were a far cry from a representative body, they still had support from the nobility. One of their biggest powers was previously mentioned, power to reject royal decrees, but they also had accumulated a motley collection of powers related to education, charity, and the supervision of the police. Indeed, they would be the first to raise banners against the king when the unpopular royal government headed by the hated Anne of Austria and her lover Cardinal Mazarin tried to implement broader reaching taxes to pay for the expense of Thirty Years' War and the Spanish-French War, the parlements were outraged. These new taxes infringed somewhat on their ancient feudal liberties, and they, as the courts, felt like they had a duty to protect said liberties. They vetoed new taxes and put forward legislation to the crown which would limit its powers even more. Mazarin had no choice but to accept, since his troops were still off fighting in Spain and Germany. These concessions would not last long, for as soon as the Peace of Westphalia was signed, Mazarin marched his army back to France, and in a move that echoed his colleague Charles's play across the channel, arrested several members of the Parlement. Paris flew into an uproar, and the citizens rioted in the streets. Parlement raised their banners, and faced with a war in two fronts, one in Spain and one at home, Mazarin was forced, yet again, to accept concessions. And thus, the first phase of the Fronde was over, only four months after it began. The second phase is murkier. It was characterized by intrigue and nobles feuding both with themselves and Mazarin. For the sake of concision, I will tell the gist of the event itself. Essentially, Condé, a French general, was angry that his stellar services were not, were not rewarded with more land, and so he revolted, followed by many more nobles. These fought both the crown and each other until 1653, when Mazarin defeated them and rode triumphantly into Paris. The Fronde had failed, and France needed to deal with the consequences, namely in the shape of a young king with ambition as great as the sun, Louis Fourteenth. Louis had been born in 1638, 15 years before the end of the Fronde, and his time was coming to be coronated. The Fronde left an indelible mark on him. The nobles and judges were not to be trusted. He must rule France alone. After coming to power in 1654, he began to consolidate power in France. His overall goal was the realization of the theory of absolutism, the consolidation of all power into the monarch's hands. All of his subjects should answer to him and only to him. This ambition had the potential of turning into grueling, bloody wars of the nobility, but Louis, perhaps remembering the days of the Fronde, decided against this approach. Instead, he, consoli he consolidated power diplomatically through the Palace of Versailles. In 1654, Versailles was but a small hunting hut, but under Louis's reign it would expand to a sprawling, opulent palace. Through subtle diplomacy and social pressure, Louis eventually convinced the most powerful French nobles to live there, and while they were at Versailles, he made sure that their time was spent on trivial matters like having affairs and court rituals, not on plotting against him. 
In a way, Louis gained complete power over France by neutralizing the nobles, not through bloodshed, but through diplomacy and parties. This continued the trend of absolute monarchy in Europe, and made France a more efficient state by placing its entire resources at Louis' disposal. It also started a hundred-year tradition in France of absolute monarchy, dubbed the Ancien Régime. This would meet its downfall in the flames of the French Revolution. The foreign front for Louis was a mixed bag. Louis ended the drawn-out Franco-Spanish War in 1659, and although it did not mark the definitive decline of Spain, it did signal France as an up-and-coming power. I will not recount the troop movements of this war, partially for concision's sake, partially because this is not Louis's war. The same could not be said for the next war Louis pursued, the War of Devolution. This was a war of aggression and conquest, and Louis's justifications for these were shoddy at best. When he married his wife, Maria Theresa of Spain, she had entered in an agreement in which she waived all succession rights in exchange for a large dowry for Louis. This dowry had never been paid, and by an obscure feudal law code, her claims to the Spanish Netherlands had been transferred onto him. Spanish lawyers argued fiercely against this, but it was justification enough for Louis to invade the Spanish Netherlands in May of 1667. France initially had great success capturing forts and cities in modern-day southern Belgium. This was due to one big factor, the Spanish could not reinforce their garrisons. This was because since the start of the Eight Years' War, Spain had used a path dubbed the Spanish Road to transport their troops to the Benelux. Soldiers would be transported by sea to the Naples region, then up to Milan, then to Savoy, then across the Alps, and then up through the princedoms of the Holy Roman Empire, and then finally into the Benelux. However, at French insistence, the princedoms no longer chose to cooperate. They closed their borders. Therefore, Louis' armies met virtually no resistance while capturing fortresses and cities. However, Louis' dream of expansion, while glorious to him, were odious to the other select European powers, namely the Netherlands, England, the newly independent Portugal, and Sweden, all but Portugal great powers. These nations declared war on him, and Louis suddenly ended up getting a lot more than he bargained for. Things only got worse when his armies attacked Beskanen, a free city in the Holy Roman Empire. Seeing Louis' aggression towards one of their own, the member states of the Holy Roman Empire, who had previously denied Spanish armies at French insistence, now allowed Spanish armies to complete the Spanish road, and therefore France was vulnerable to attack from Spanish armies newly arrived in the Benelux. Seeing the impossibility of a situation, Louis sued for peace, and managed to keep 12 cities and forts in modern-day Belgium. Besides this, this war gathered for the first time an anti-French coalition. This signaled that France was a rising power, rising indeed that nations had to seek safety in numbers to limit French expansion. Over the next few years, Louis would work to dissolve this coalition. He allied England and Sweden and also steeled his hatred for the traitorous Dutch, who, after receiving French support in their long independence war, had foiled their plans for expansion. Just like the Terminator, Louis would be back, and the resulting conflict would be unoriginally called the Franco-Dutch War. However, before we get into this conflict, we must delve into the other European powers, and we shall start with the other belligerent of the Franco-Dutch War, the Netherlands. In this section, we shall delve into the Dutch during the period before 1688, then at their apogee. We shall discuss their society, economy, and government, and finally their geopolitical interests. One remarkable thing about the Netherlands in this time is its government. The Dutch government was relatively unique at its time. It was run by a group of officials representing towns who, when convened, were called the Estates General. These would then serve as the de jure executive ruling body for the Netherlands. Naturally, 
Political parties within the provincial representatives formed, and these took the form of the pro-republic and the orangist party. These are not their official names, I just summarized the parties. I don't want to badly mispronounce the Dutch names. These supported different de facto rulers of the Netherlands, with the orangists supporting the stadtholder, the military commander-in-chief, and the pro-republicans supporting the grand pensionary as leader. Officially, the stadtholder had more power, but the grand pensionary stepped in when there was no stadtholder. And this was what happened in the years leading up to the Franco-Dutch War. When William II died, the States General failed to elect another stadtholder, and instead raised Johann de Witt as grand pensionary, acting leader. This had consequences that we will discuss later. During the period, the Dutch were generally considered to be at their peak power, and the reason for this rise can be summarized in one word, trade. The Dutch held a veritable monopoly on trade both in the New World and the Old. Although the New World trade entices the imagination more, it is important to remember that it was more or less a sideshow. The real money that the Dutch pulled in was in its control of the Baltic trade, from which they could draw on the riches of England, Germany, and Scandinavia. Another growing source of wealth for them was the Indian Ocean trade, which would grow over the course of the century. The next natural question is why this happened. How did the Netherlands come to dominate trade? The answer lies in the elimination of competition and its aggressive merchants. Roughly in the period 1609 to 1688, possible Dutch competitors for trade were eliminated. England was in the throes of its civil war, so was France. The Spanish had numerous problems, including depopulation, stagnant economy, and an ineffective government, and overshadowing it all was the Thirty Years' War and the devastation it caused. This power vacuum let the Dutch catapult themselves to the top and stay there unopposed until the rule of Cromwell. Additionally, the Dutch had set up the East India Company, and although they faced competition in the Indian Ocean from the Spanish and Portuguese, they started to uproot these established powers from their dominant places. Aside from this, though, the Netherlands also rose because it was flushed with capital. Population growth had been nearly excessive in the 15th and 16th centuries, and the Dutch also farmed more effectively than the other European states. I'm looking at you, Poland and Russia. And another reason why they had so much capital, which it's sort of an argument for open borders, is that they had they had been a destination for immigrants, especially Jews, which added who added to their productive population. Finally, in the province of Holland at least, they had experienced urbanization, which led to the rise of the middle class and an economy focused more around trade than agriculture. All of these factors gave the Dutch merchants abundant capital with which to fund more trips, trade posts, and land for the VOC. These soon netted even more money, and so the money-making cycle continued, and the Dutch were all the better for it. As hinted at before, the Dutch monopoly started to break with the ascension of Cromwell and the mercantilist laws he enacted, namely the Navigation Acts. Even in spite of this, though, money would continue to flow into the Netherlands, their golden period lasting some 50 years after the rule of Cromwell. Perhaps the reason that the Netherlands was able to be so successful economically was in its unique government institutions. As with the Great Republic of Venice, these worked to further business interests by giving them a direct sane government, instead of having to rule via proxy by the estate system common in other European countries, namely Austria and the Holy Roman Empire. The Netherlands was also very decentralized. Each state was different in terms of economics, with more urbanized states, like Holland focusing on trade, while less urbanized provinces, especially those in the north focused on agriculture. Now that we have discussed the internal affairs in the Netherlands, we shall discuss the external ones, and in the period between the Treaty of Westphalia and 1688, Dutch foreign relations were characterized by conflict, first with England and then with France. Their first enemy was England, who they fought in the First and Second Anglo-Dutch Wars. These saw little change in terms of economic concessions, but did see a rise in England as a competitor to the Netherlands and the Sealanes. 
Interestingly, one part of the peace treaty that ended the Second Anglo-Dutch War was that England would relax enforcement of the Navigation Acts, which may partly explain the period of salutary neglect in American history. Overall, on the eve of the Franco-Dutch War, the Netherlands was certainly in its zenith. Its merchants, while still in competition with the English, were pulling in fat stacks, and Amsterdam, flush with cash, was the banging capital of Europe. The Dutch Navy had beaten the Royal Navy in two major battles within the past three wars, and it looked like the sun would never set on the Dutch Empire. As it turns out, it would not for another 20 years, but a different kind of sun would descend onto the Dutch in the years to come. The Sun King. The lead-up to the Franco-Dutch War was marked by serious preparations on Louis's part. He signed a secret alliance with England in the Treaty of Dover to ensure that he would not join an anti-French coalition like the one that had foiled him last time. He mobilized 180,000 men, a grand army indeed, and army reforms by Secretary of War made feeding and arming that army possible. He also concocted a plan of attack. He would march his forces up through the Princedom of Liege and blitz the Netherlands. There was still the problem of the Dutch alliance with Frederick William, the Great Elector, but Louis had a plan for that as well. Sweden would attack them in Pomerania, tying down their forces. On the Dutch side, the preparations were far less impressive. Their funds had been redirected from the army to the navy in a political ploy to weaken the Orangists, and most of the army was under strength. In addition, they even had intelligence of the French plans to attack, but they still responded pitifully, giving the order to mobilize only 80,000 men, less than half of the French troops. Even those meager forces would not be available if the French invaded. It would take months to assemble the armies, and as we shall see, they arrived far too late. They did take one decisive action, though. They conscripted 70,000 peasants to build defenses to form a defensive line called the Issa Line. Even with the defenses, the Dutch were practically prostrated before Louis when he declared war on 6th of April, 1672. The French blitzed their forces across the Princeton of Liege and crashed into the Netherlands. They stormed across the line, capturing the forts of Rheinberg, Orsoy, Bruick, Wessel, and Ries, and crossing at Emmerich-Habrein. As one who is acquainted with World War II might know, this was no small feat. The Rhine was a mighty military obstacle, and in losing it, the Netherlands had lost a serious defensive asset. There was one more defensive line, however, the Issa Line. The French breach of this line is perhaps not surprising considering the ease with which they breached the Rhine. It is considerably more surprising, though, when the political effects of the breach were. Deneventer straight up seceded from the Netherlands and rejoined the Holy Roman Empire, and the province of Overyssel surrendered to the French. More significantly, those two had also withdrawn their troops, spelling near disaster for the already meager Dutch force. Meanwhile, the French consolidated their hold on the Iso and captured land further into the Netherlands as well. In short, this war was an absolute disaster for the Netherlands. Their army, led by William of Orange, retreated back to the last possible defensive line, the waterworks around Holland. By this point, the province was nearly all the land the Dutch held. In desperation, they sent a very generous peace offer to Louis, offering the southern part of the Netherlands and a substantial amount of money. This was a deal that Louis absolutely should have taken, and he declined it. The question lies in why he declined. Firstly, one of Louis's goals in the war was to humiliate the Netherlands. This had not been accomplished. Sure, he had captured most of their country, but this had happened mostly without a fight. He wanted a victory that would earn him prestige and the Dutch humiliation to show the might of French arms. Also, relations with England were touchy. If he made the wrong decisions, he could end up in a costly war with no clear goal, something Louis naturally wanted to avoid. While Louis was deliberating the peace author, the Netherlands was dissolving into chaos. As is usual with ruling parties and disasters, the Dutch people blamed their ignominious defeat on the ruling party, the pro-Republicans, and so therefore the Orangists came into power. 
William III of Orange was the new head of state. A second thing that happened while Louis was deliberating on the peace, the water lines around Holland filled. That This meant that the Netherlands would be virtually impregnable, a small victory for the new stadtholder. With the crash of the Amsterdam stock market and the drying up of credit, things did not look good for the Netherlands. However, another nation was surveying the situation and assessing the damage that would be dealt if France won. Spain. If France managed to annex the southern part of the Netherlands, it would encircle the Spanish Netherlands, and it would in essence be forfeit. Another ally arriving for William, the sovereign of Brandenburg, Prussia. Although his support would not manifest for the rest of 1672, it would certainly put pressure on France and convince Louis that this would no longer be a quick war. 1673, although relatively calm on the military front, was extremely active on the political front. Overall, these were negative for France. On one hand, Brandenburg Prussia was forced out of the war due to a lack of money at the Peace of Vossum. On the other hand, France, Spain, and a number of German principalities formally intervened in the war by forming an anti-French coalition. In addition, England effectively pulled out of the war. The war and alliance with the French had always been unpopular, and finally Parliament pressured Charles II to sign a peace negotiation. This would not happen until the following year, but 1673 marks the de facto end of mil English military contribution. The two years following 1673 mark when the effects of this that year's events started to manifest. The fronts expanded and it was fought in Belgium, the Rhineland, southern France, and Sicily. Another arguable front was the Spanish province of Franche-Comte, but considering it was overrun in six weeks by French detachment, we will not waste words on it following this sentence. The Belgian front was characterized by a Spanish attack and a French counterattack, and then a period of inactivity. The coalition forces grabbed the initiative and moved quickly capturing Charleroi in a smattering of forts. After receiving some reinforcements, the French general, Louis de Bourbon, veteran commander of the Thirty Years' War of the Fronde and the War of Devolution, had decided to engage the coalition at Seneth. Coalition forces commanded by William III himself took the initiative in battle and tried to surround the French, but Louis de Bourbon correctly guessed their strategy. And while coalition forces were marching into position, de Bourbon ordered an attack. The French routed the larger coalition force, partially a function of them splitting their larger force into three small columns, and they retreated. It is important to note that this battle had casualties appalling to that age, around 20,000 men. It is telling that this caused Louis de Bourbon to start to lose favor with Louis XIV. Even though the coalition forces regained their lost men, or estimated around 14,000 relatively quickly, and continued to outnumber Louis de Bourbon's forces, they did not take any decisive action for the rest of the war. They were paralyzed by internal political discussion. William III wanted to liberate the Netherlands, Spain wanted to capture French cities adjacent to the Spanish Netherlands, and the Austrians wanted to help out their compatriots of the Rhine. Speaking of the Rhine, the Rhenish theater starred one of the best French generals of the age, Henri de la Tour de Auvergne, often abbreviated to Touraine. With an army of just 7,000, he rushed into Germany, and before turning on the main coalition force under Alexander von Bourbonville, he defeated a smaller army that would have reinforced his army at Sinsheim. The coalition forces, although greater in number, chose not to attack Turin's army at this critical moment, but decided instead to camp out at Alsace and wait for 20,000 troops from Brandenburg, Prussia to arrive. Before they could do this, Turenne assaulted von Bourbonville's positions, and although he was outnumbered 22,000 to 35,000, he won. His persistence and aggressiveness won the battle, and he was able to establish psychological supremacy over his enemy. They would fear him and his persistent assaults. His next stroke of genius came during the winter. According to military convention, campaigns would stop during the winter, 
and this is what coalition forces did. However, Turen did not rest and moved about splitting up his forces to increase confusion in his enemy and hitting them from all sides. This campaign culminated in the Battle of Turkheim, which displayed arguably one of Turen's most forward-thinking battle plans. He ditched the usual pre-battle artillery bombardment and rushed his forces around to capture Turkheim, a town in the rear of the coalition forces. Frederick William, the great elector, rushed back to recapture it, but was repulsed by an infantry assault. Meanwhile, in the main battlefield, Turenne concentrated his forces to establish local superiority in the enemy's right flank. He won the battle, and the speed with which he attacked and the ideas about the local supremacy shocked the defenders and impressed even Napoleon. The battle was the nail in the coffin for coalition forces west of the Rhine. Soon after, they retreated eastwards, and Turenne had achieved his objectives, namely keeping the imperial Rhenish army at bay and not letting it invade France proper. The next action would come in 1673, when the coalition forces under Monte Chuelli crossed the Rhine, resulting in the Battle of Salzbach. Although inconclusive, it was a major loss for future French prospects. Turenne was killed by a stray coalition cannonball while inspecting his own artillery. After the death of Turenne, things reached a stalemate on the Rhenish theater. Louis de Bourbon was sent to command the French army and forced Monte Chuelli back across the Rhine. Afterwards, there was no notable action in this theater. The two remaining theaters were both relatively quiet, and what happened was a mixed bag for France. While they did incite a rebellion and gain local naval superiority around Sicily, they lost the fortress of Bellegarde in southern Spain. In 1676, peace talks started in the city of Nimegin. While this was happening, coalition forces made some minor gains, but the eventual peace deal was favorable to the French. While it is true that they gave up their ground, captured in the Netherlands, they gained the provinces of Franche-Comte, Ypres, Maubig, Chateau-Cambrace, Valenciennes, Saint-Omer, and Castle, and I do apologize for those butchered pronunciations. Overall, the war showed many things. Firstly, it showed that France was Europe's number one great power. They had taken on a coalition with nearly all other contenders for that spot, including Austria, the Netherlands, Spain, and had beaten them all. Secondly, it showed a European resistance to French expansion. Fear of France would be the dominant factor in European courts from then on. Thirdly, it showed the weakness of the Netherlands. Although incredibly rich, the French blitzkrieg through the country showed the deficiency of its army, and it would be knocked down a notch in the imaginary Great Powers list. Thank you for listening to Season 1, Episode 1, Part 1 of Critical History. I hope you come back next week when we wrap up contextualizing 1688. I am Adam Schwalbe, and I will see you next week.